Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, our guest is Paul Selig. Paul is a medium, a channel, an accomplished psychic. He is not the author of the fantastic book, I Am the Word. Instead, he is the means by which the book, I Am the Word, was written. Says Paul, it is a dictated text, dictated to him by his guides, a group of ascended masters who have a message. Paul is also the former director of the MFA creative writing program at Goddard College, as well as long-standing playwriting faculty at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. I took this opportunity to speak with Paul not only about the deep and transformative content of his channeled books, but about his process with traditional writing before clairvoyance. And I posed to him the question, is there any relevant relation to the work that makes up his life now? And our conversation was fascinating, at least to me, but the real craziness, the truly weird stuff came in the second half of our conversation when we discussed the content of his work. And I think that's all I have to say about it. I know that you'll enjoy this discussion. I have to apologize. My brain stopped working soon after his guides came in and started speaking to me. So if I sound at times like a bumbling idiot, I deeply apologize. English was not coming easy to me. But I think the truth is this, this message is not necessarily received best on an intellectual level. It's a vibrational frequency. So as you listen to this, perhaps consider absorbing uh, the content of the interview on more than one level. So with no further ado, here's my conversation at the Esalen Institute with Paul Selig. Thank you so much for joining us for Voices of Esalen. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been such an exciting force at, at Esalen each time you've been here, um, an important teacher. And I, I wonder if you might be able to describe in a general way for people who are not yet familiar with your work uh, and your message, what is the work that you do? I'm a conscious channel, so I work with guides and I show up and the guides themselves that I work with come through with the teaching um, that they've been bringing through in workshops and in a series of books, you know, pretty consistently over the last decade. Um, the work that I do as a, as a spoken channel, um, you know, I come through with information, but the guides also come through with an energy that they work with that people find very palpable. And the guides teach people how to work with the energy. And their work, I think, is really supporting us in claiming what they say is our true self or the divine self, which they say is who and what we truly are. And the calling that and being that and into manifestation really is the work. And in one form or another, it's always the work that they do here, although how they bring it through and how they teach might be somewhat different. I think the last time I was here in March, they dictated about 100 pages of a new book in front of the students that were there. And that was a trip because none of us were really expecting it, but you know, that's how they work. So they love to teach and they like to talk and they come through with energy and that's what I do. That's fantastic. Um, before we, we really delve into the material of your work, the d discussion of the word, um, I'd like to discuss a bit with you what it means to be a medium and, and how that relates to the art of creativity. Because you're a writer, an actor, a playwright. Before you became a medium, 
Was there an element of channeling in your creative practice? Yeah, but I wouldn't have known it as such. I mean, I was a playwright. That's what I did. And playwriting was always about hearing voices and becoming character. And I was doing that. And, you know, effectively. But what I didn't know, and I actually didn't know that until I was asked in an interview here a few years ago um, for a documentary that somebody was shooting. And they said, you know, how did being a playwright inform being a channel? And I said, well, it didn't. They're two completely different things. And then I thought about it. And in fact, it was great preparation because what I am doing still is I'm hearing and I'm becoming. Um, but there's a bit of a difference. You know, I work... I'm known as a medium for the living, so I have this odd ability that, you know, to step into people that are alive. So if you want to know what's going on with your sister who you haven't talked to, say, in two years, and you give me her name, I can usually step into her and I'll start to resemble her. I'll take on her mannerisms and I'll hear. And I'll hear what's going on in the dynamic between the two of you. I may hear her. I'll hear you at different levels. And so, you know, the difference in becoming character is I found out that I could really do it. It wasn't about making somebody up. And I didn't know that I could do that until I did it. Somebody came to me because they wanted to talk with my guides, which is how my, my practice evolved. I wasn't looking to have a practice as a psychic. And this woman mentioned her father, and my eyes were closed, and I guess she gave me his name, and the next thing I knew, she was gasping, and I opened my eyes, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, oh, my God, you look just like him. And it had not been a good relationship, and she hadn't seen him since he'd crossed. So I found out that I could do that every time. And um, that's a form of clairsentience that I seem to have. So when I work as a channel, my guides are becoming me, and they're sort of the character, if you wish, that's expressing in their language and with their design and their intention. And then when I work with people that are living, it's sort of a different thing. I'm, I'm becoming the object of inquiry. And uh, you know, a medium that I respect, who actually teaches here, Laura Day, once described what I do as mediumship because mediumship really is becoming the object of inquiry. It's becoming the object. When my guides work with me, they're really becoming me. I mean, so much so that my eyes often change color and they run a very, very pale blue and I have dark hazel eyes. Um, you know, and, you know, when I become other people, I'm sort of somatizing them. It's an odd ability. It's fascinating. It's beyond fascinating. It's, uh, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Do you remain passionate about the art of writing? No. It, it, no. <laughs> I had the worst writer's block of anybody I've ever met in my life. I was miserable. I didn't, well, I mean, I won't say that. I, yeah, I was. I was a playwright when I was in my early 20s, and I went to Yale, and I got the pedigree, and I was getting produced in New York and London and getting my picture in the magazines, and I was a complete basket case, really. And... um you know, there was something about writing for the theater that I cared about, but I think what I was doing was seeking an experience through that that was really kind of a mystical experience. And I get that now through my work and through something that's immediate and unscripted and not contrived and not dependent upon effect. But no, I really, you know, and I, I taught playwriting for 25 years at NYU, and I was very good at it. I was a very good playwriting teacher, and I ran a graduate program at Goddard College for probably close to 20 as well in writing. 
And I love teaching it, but I don't miss my own creative work. Um, my guides dictate books through me now, and for now, that's what I do. And I think one day I'll write my own about this whole experience, yes. but hasn't happened yet, but it may. I think you've already asked this, but and and so if you, I think you've already answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there a bridge between the traditional writing, in other words, the the work that you did before focusing on being a medium, and the work of writing in service to a set of voices? I think there is, in a way, there's a bridge, um, and I think the bridge is always intent. When I look at my early work as a playwright, I was always, I mean, the, the climax of every play in some way or another was some kind of, of religious experience or, or psychic epiphany, even though I was raised an atheist and I didn't believe in any of this stuff. But I think that kind of, that idea of transcendence was always present in the worlds that I explored. And the worlds that I was exploring as a playwright initially were very dark worlds. I was writing about the bars and the street and, you know, New York, you know, in the midst of the onslaught of, of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, that's what I, my, my work wasn't cheerful work. But I was always seeking transcendence myself without even knowing what that was. But it was showing up in my writing. And then after I found myself on a spiritual path, which happened at age 25, and I was continuing to write, um, haltingly, but I was continuing for the years and I was working, I was exploring the theme of transcendence consciously. I knew what I was looking for. Any, any writer who's truly an artist probably has an obsession or a couple that they're exploring in their work, and that was really mine. Now, the books that come through me aren't even written by me, and they're about transcendence. So there's a whole other kind of bridge that's happened, which I had probably very little to do with, at least on a conscious level. You mentioned being put onto a spiritual path when you were 25. Um, I'm wondering if you're, you'd be willing to talk about an experience that, that put you onto that path. Well, there were two. Well, and, and I mean, I think there were two, but they were connected, and this was an ongoing passage for me. I had been raised in New York City, and, you know, I was, you know, I was born in 61, so, you know, I was... I was I was born believing that religion was probably for stupid people. Um, it wasn't what we talked about. I didn't know what a spiritual life was or that one would want one or could have one. I really couldn't care less, truthfully. And, um, you know, when I was 25, I had this list of things I had achieved in the world that I thought would make me okay. And it was a classy list, I thought. My little playwriting list from Yale, you know. And I got the whole list, and I wasn't okay. Like accolades were on that list. I was getting, yeah, I was getting produced in New York and London. I was being reviewed in the Times favorably, you know, at 20, 25, 24, 25. I was twenty five years old, and you know, I was getting my my picture in, in in magazines. And I mean, it was in retrospect, it was superficial stuff, but it was heady for a twenty five year old. And it's what I had thought I had wanted, and what I believed I think would make me okay in the world. And it didn't make me okay. It really didn't. And I was working on an opera um, at Minnesota Opera, and I was crashing on everything you could probably be crashing from, and absolutely miserable. And, you know, and the Gideons leave these Bibles in the drawers in these hotels. 
and I took it out, and I said prayer for people in crisis somewhere in there. And I knew I was in a crisis, although I couldn't have named the crisis at all. I just knew I was in one, and I knew whatever was wrong wasn't getting better. And I said it. And then three days later, I heard a voice telling me to get my act together and how to do it. And I did it. I, I actually, and it was the first voice. Now, that began a change of what was possible in the world. Because to go from living in a world where there's no such thing as spirit or God or whatever you want to call it, to one in which there might be is a radical change. And that was blowing my mind. And I was this rock and roll playwright with this Billy Idol platinum blonde hair and a black leather jacket. And I was a chain smoker and a, I'd been a hard drinker and was proud of it all to suddenly living in this other world. And in 1987, there was this thing happening. People were calling it the harmonic convergence. And I heard people are going to be waking up. And I went up to the roof of my house the night of this thing. And in retrospect, in all innocence, with great innocence, I just sort of asked to be woken up in the expectation that something could actually happen. And I don't know still if I was just hyperventilating and I had and I induced some experience through the mantra that somebody gave me, which was turned out to be a Kundalini mantra. I didn't even know what that was. But I had a mantra and a crystal, and all of a sudden I was saying this thing. And I felt this energy start to build from, you know, the pit of my being and come up, up, up through my body and out through the top of my head. And it left me paralyzed on the rooftop and sort of swaying in this energy. And I lost my hearing and it was like not scary at all. It was just this amazing thing that was happening. And, you know, for whatever it was, and I don't know that it even matters anymore, um, it gave me a sense of something real and of something of substance that I think I needed for me to continue on the journey that I've been on. And, you know, the fruits of that experience, or maybe just the fruits of the time, and I tie it to that experience, was I started seeing lights around people. So now I had, you know, heard a voice and I'd felt energy and now I was seeing lights. So my world was just shot, you know, nothing made any sense anymore. Nothing was as I thought it was. And in some ways, as miserable as that was to let go of everything that you thought was real and suddenly live in a world where things didn't make the same kind of sense, it was also great opportunity for, for, for awakening of some kind. I'm thinking about what you said about your list of things you wanted to accomplish and how it, it ties in with the egoic self. When I think about being a, a medium, I'm imagining there's some sort of erasure of personality. There's a, there's a stepping back. Does that feel true to you? Oh, I know some mediums with some huge egos, and they're very good mediums, um, and they operate effectively. I'm a channel, first and foremost, and as a channel, I'm actually receding in consciousness so every time I'm about to do what I do in a large way, which means when I come here and do a workshop or when I'm working on a book, I'm imagining myself climbing into the back seat of a car with a magazine and turning the steering wheel of the car over to what comes through me. I recede and then I allow the other consciousness to take the forefront. And that's what speaks and comes through. So the personality self that I operate as is receded 
for that work. If I were to read for you psychically, and if I were to be effective with you, I would have to recede enough not to be in judgment or in fear or any of those things or desire or any of those things that I might bring to you as somebody that I'm with. I'm great if I can be neutral. If I have an agenda for the reading or an agenda for you, I'm not going to be effective, I think, at least in the way that I work. So there's still a kind of stepping away that happens. But when I read, which is more psychic worth or, or clairsentient work, um, I can be more present. I'm not in the back seat of the car. It's like I'm sharing the front seat of the car with the guides because I'm tuning into you and I'm actually feeling what's going on with you and your emotions and your life in my own body and in my own emotional and in my own emotional field, you know. So in, in some ways, I, if you can imagine that I'm just sort of a radio and... When I'm playing the guides, they're coming through me. If I'm reading you, I'm tuning into you. But the difference is if I'm tuning into you, I have to interpret or I get to interpret. I get the privilege of knowing what it's like to feel like to walk around in your body and have your feelings for a period of time. And that's how it, it feels, you know. I mean, I'm the only guy that I know that knows what it's like to be pregnant, you know. Um, I, I've had a hot flash. I, I've, you know, I gave birth once in a reading. I've had some trippy experiences as a woman um, that I never thought I would get to have, you know, in the body. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, when I'm doing it and I'm tuning into somebody else, I'm allowing myself to be in receipt of or as them, I become, I allowed, I, I, I'm allowed to be as them. It's the best way that I, and it is liquid. But then my assessment of it, of what I'm feeling, is usually through my own associations. So for example, if, if you were to say, I'm involved with somebody, what do they really think of me? And I tune into them and my tongue comes wagging out of my mouth. That means they're attracted. It always means the same things. If they look around you, if I start looking around you to see who's behind you, that means they're looking to see who's next. If the tongue comes out and looks at everybody, it means they're into, they're into everybody and you happen to be there. So there's code that I interpret. But if I tune into somebody and I feel their yearning or their loss or their rage or their frustration at not being seen, I'm feeling it. But I have to, I only recognize what I feel because I felt it. You know, I have had a life where for better and for worse, I've known great pain and great joy, and I understand the spectrum of that. So in order for me to do what I do, I have to be willing to feel that even for a moment again in order to recognize it. And that is liquid. But, you know, the good thing is I don't have to carry it around. I don't have to, to be in their pain or be in their longing. You know, I have my own stuff. And that's, that's enough for me to deal with. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, I was reading your book, I Am the Word, and it is... Uh, dictated by Ascended Masters, a group of Ascended Masters. And I'm wondering, has it changed you that these teachings have come through you? Or in other words, are you more ascended now than you were before they spoke through you? I don't know how to answer that because I'm not the best judge of my own 
consciousness. I'm not, I'm not afraid in the way that I used to be, and I used to be terribly afraid. And um, the fact that I'm doing this publicly at the level that I am and not trying to hide under the bed, um, which is what I would have done 10 years ago or even seven years ago, probably. I mean, I had a website as a psychic without my name on it or my, or my photograph. I didn't want anybody to find me. I didn't want to lose my teaching jobs. I thought I would die on the streets of starvation if I lost these jobs that I'd had forever. And, you know, but have I ascended? I don't think so. I think I'm the guy that shows up as best I can. The guides talked yesterday in this workshop that they're doing here, and they said something that I don't know that I've heard from them before. They talked about, uh, you know, high consciousness as, as, as being both noble and humble at the same time. You're not denying your worth at all, but there's a true humility there because you can't deny anybody else's as well if you're at that place. And there I can be much of the time. I don't perceive myself as special, and I don't perceive myself as more awake than anybody else. I do think that for better or for worse, I might be a bit more sensitive in terms of how my receptors work, which is challenging sometimes to be that open. Yeah. But, do, you know, I mean, I used to say when I was, for, how did your life change? I said, well, I lost 130 pounds, and I had. I was like, you know, tiny for a few years. And then I got stressed and quit all my jobs, and I ate like a horse for about a year and a half due to stress. I can't say that anymore. You know, maybe the next time I see you. So, you know, how have I changed? I mean, my whole life has changed. That's the funny thing. I left a career that I loved. Um, I'm doing work that I think is incomprehensible some days because, I mean, it's very normal to me to show up and do this stuff, but I don't understand it. I have my own degree of skepticism still. I mean, I know that it's real when it's happening because there's no way to fake it. And I know that I don't know what your sister looks like, so how could I become her and claim the true dynamic but when I'm not doing it, it's a head-scratcher because I don't know the science. And there must be a science that can explain some of this because I, I think most mysticism probably is explainable. And I don't mean that in a reductive way. We like to explain things in order to diminish them. And I'm more interested in understanding how things work because I think it's kind of amazing. And if, 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 if it can be substantiated in a way that can allow others to to open up to its possibilities, it has enormous implications for the world, truthfully, and how we treat one another. I mean, if I can step into you and feel what it's like to be you and know what it's like to feel your feelings, and I mean that in a really, not just in, not in, a, in an amorphous way, in a very direct way, it means we're not just our bodies. And if I can step into you as you were when you were 12 years old and feel what was happening in your family and know what it was like to be you and your mother and your brother at that time, that means time isn't what I think it is either. Do you understand? Everything, again, becomes fluid and, and, and changes. And I think that's kind of great, you know? That's all. Do you ever wrestle with the question, why was I chosen for this task? We've spoken a bit about the positive changes for your life, but 
I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about some of the challenges inherent in this experience. There were huge challenges, and there continue to be challenges. I realized that by sort of becoming visible, I'm setting myself up for judgment and ridicule and all that stuff, and I don't like any of it. I'm actually kind of a shy person. And I like to hide out in my apartment already, and I don't need anything else to try to keep me indoors, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, there are those challenges. The challenges with this work have been there for me every step of the way and continue to be only in that my concept of who and what I am continues to be challenged by what I do and the contact and, and, and who everybody else is too. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not the best student of the work that comes through me. I wish I were better than I am, but my guides are pretty direct about the need to bear witness to the divine in everyone you meet, regardless of what they present and regardless of what you might think of them. And that's really challenging stuff. I mean, they say you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. It just can't be so. So that stuff is challenging. Initially, when I was new to this, I was enormously excited by it. And I wanted to shout it from the rooftops. And I was studying energy healing. And I wanted to put my hands on everybody. And I'm sure I was a big pain in the ass. And, you know, but I was looking for it to be validated, I think, and I wanted people to validate my experience and see. And I also think I needed to be special then. I needed to feel that this was important and it gave me a sense of meaning or worth. And I was told by another medium when I was in my early 30s, and I said, when am I just going to do this stuff for real? And I heard... Oh, and you're like late 40s, early 50s. And I was like, what? I don't want to wait that long to do my real work. And what the answer was is she said, you know, you've been veiled for your own protection. And in retrospect, you know, my work did not get known until the guide started dictating books through me, which was in 2009, 2010 was the first book. So it's six years ago. So I've only been on the map for that long. But I think... I had been through enough in my life. You know, my guide said at one point in a group, they said, you know, Paul's had enough public humiliation to be able to withstand whatever comes. Sort of, he's had it already. So, you know, it makes it a little less horrible. Um, and, I, and I can sort of get behind that just a little bit. But I, I mean, I, the challenge still is, the biggest challenge for me is still walking the walk. You know, I... I, I know it's real. There's nothing I've ever been given to make me doubt the, uh, the truth of the teachings. Um, and the energy can be felt and it can be known by anybody. You don't have to be into this stuff. You can, it's essentially, my guides say, we're all radios. We're always running a broadcast. If you want to run the divine energy, here it is. They essentially give us the codes to play the higher broadcast, and then, bang, it's there. And it's there in a way that you can know. And my guides are all real big on knowing, because if you know, when they say knowing and realization are the same thing, if you know something in your own way, you have your own experience of it, then you don't have to defer to anybody else. It's just yours. See, then you don't need a teacher. You know what I mean? You have your own expression, your own experience of 
of source. So even with all that stuff that I've been given, I still bemoan my lack of a relationship. I'm still angry that my dog died. I'm still angry. You know, I've got all my stuff still. Le my human stuff, less than I did. Less, I think. But it's I am human, and I can celebrate that too. I mean, you know, being the divine self, which is their teaching, I think isn't at the cost of, of being in our experience here it's at the it's it, it gives us the opportunity to be in the experience here in a in a, in a in a very different way and in a way that's not about replicating fear which is mostly what we do when we walk around in a lifetime we're taught what to fear we're taught who to be we take all that data and all that information, we plug it in and we work with a personality that adheres to these things that may have very little to do with who we truly are, you know, but who we're taught to be. And that's what they're teaching is, is to be your, your divine or authentic self. I'm new to your teachings, but I actually feel very drawn to, to your message and, and your work. It's exciting and I can actually feel as we speak sort of a a high energy running through my, my body. Um, you mentioned in your book this feeling of a bubbling, like when you start bubbling, like there's Alka-Seltzer running through mm -hmm. your veins, then mm -hmm. something is, is happening. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the single most important element of, the, of becoming the word? Is it, is it being attuned to what you call the, the Christ consciousness? Well, I mean, they're shaking my head no. So it's, you know, I, you know, I don't write these books. I just take the dictation. So I, I may have to ask them what the most important aspect of the teaching is. They're saying it's the realization of who and what you are in the manifestation. And then the manifestation of it, which follows. They're saying which follows to be manifested. They're saying to be manifested as the true self claims you, claims you outside of history, outside of history and what you were taught to be and what you were taught to be. It's extremely, it's extremely liberating, but it also demands, but it also demands that you release who you think you are, that you release who you think you are, what you claimed yourself as, and what you've claimed yourself as in concert with life, in consort with a life or a culture or a culture or religion or a religion or a world or a world to deny the world. To deny the world is not the teaching here, is not the teaching here to claim the truth of your being is, to claim the truth of your being is. And when you realize it, and when you realize it, which means you manifest what you are, which means you manifest it as what you are, it expresses itself, it expresses itself as and through you, as and through you for the benefit of the world you live in, for the benefit of the world you live in, period, period. So that's their version. Okay, and in case somebody heard me whispering, that's just how I get. I, I whisper and I repeat. So sometimes you hear me mumble as I channel. And, and each person is is capable of kind of a, coming into this. They're saying it's already who you are. I mean, you see, that's the whole thing. I say, you know, they're not making us who they're not making us what we're not. They're showing us who we've always been and who we've sort of denied ourselves to be. So they say the divine self is your true self. Everything else is kind of just an idea. You know, the idea of it being manifest in form is a little trippy. And that really is where they're going with it. And I didn't know that for real until the fourth book in the series. And then I'm going, oh, my God, this is what this is really about. And they're going, yeah, this is what this is really about. It's the divine in form. I mean, they say, you know, your blood is as holy as the sky. You know, your skin is as holy as 
as the sea. I mean, God is everything. It's all things, including the form you take. And until you realize that, you really can't transform the material realm through consciousness because you're still operating in this division of some idea of God in the clouds and you're here in the mud, you know? And they say, well, God is the mud. So that's okay too. So... Yeah, they're really going. They're really going for this stuff, I think. But um, the word, their definition of the word, is the energy of the Creator in action, and their definition of Christ, or the way they use the word, is um, the aspect of the Creator that can be realized in material form. That's just what it is, and they say that's the truth of who you are, and the realization of that is the awakening to your true self. Mm, yeah, and I appreciated that part in the book because the word Christ is a loaded word, obviously. The delineation they made between, I guess what you just explained, uh, Christ and the Christ consciousness as being the what we can achieve in the material plane as opposed to, quote, like Christianity, what has become yeah, an organized yeah. religion. You know, Jeff Kripal, who I guess is a, the head of the board here now, we taught a, a month together um, last year, and Jeff is... Uh, a religious scholar, and he and the guides were debating religion, which was really kind of interesting. But he sort of says that, um, you know, the, the guides are really sort of teaching like a second, I think he said second century, first or second century Christianity before there was any religion attached to it. It's really sort of the Gnostic teaching. It's the essence of of the teaching without all of the, the systems laid on top of it. Yeah. So it's in some ways it's a reclaiming of some of this stuff, I think, and I think they they reclaim the language and they use it in their own way, yeah. and and I'm I'm appreciative of that because I don't come from a religious background at all, and I think I would I would have some 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 issues as well if yeah. they hadn't explained it. Yeah, same for me. Um, and there's a passage in in I Am the Word that uh, the guides say we are outraged out loud mm -hmm. at the fact that people who have organized religion have turned it in and into a kind of a shame machine or a, mm -hmm. a punishment when mm -hmm. in fact it's when it and when in fact it is about becoming as high and as true and as aligned with the heart uh, center as possible mm -hmm. oh yeah it's one of the they don't get I don't know that I don't know if they ever really get pissed off but the few times I've heard them get pissed off, um, have been around this kind of thing. And, and I don't, again, when I say I don't know if they really, I don't know if they're just doing it for effect when they get loud. And But I was doing a workshop in uh, San Francisco about three years ago. And um, we were actually doing the workshop in what had once been, I think, a monastery or a convent that had been taken over by a bunch of artists. And, you know, the guide said to this group, and they said, you know, we, we would like to take you farther, and there's this one thing that we can't get past, you know, with you unless you're willing to release it, which is your belief in original sin. And when they went off on the idea of original sin, they were pissed because it was essentially how could you be told that you are not loved and that you're, you're bad and all that stuff. And it, the interesting thing was it turned out in that room probably two-thirds of the people had been raised Catholic and there was a nun. Too. So we had a we had a room full of people who knew this stuff and actually I think perhaps had been 
been harmed by some of those teachings or had internalized them in a way at least that wasn't supporting their growth. I mean, the guides also say that religion can be very beautiful and a, and a good stepping stone to consciousness. It's mostly everything that's gotten attached to it that's all screwed up, which is politics and control and money and all all the laws, you know, the, the essence of them, um, they, 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 they have found beauty in, yeah. not what we've done with them, which is something different. Yeah. Are you interested in your guides as personages? Kind of. I don't, I've seen one of them in meditation twice. And I think if I were a good meditator, I'd probably see him every day, but I'm not, I'm really lazy about this stuff. And, um, that was joyful for me and a, and a real relief because he looked exactly like he felt. Or I, I say he looked like how it felt to be him because when he becomes me, I know what that feels like. And so to see what that was was astonishing for me and, and quite beautiful. Um, there's another guy that's been coming through for about the last 10 months, who really dictated the last book in the series. And he's actually been teaching here this week, which is funny. And the only reason I know the difference is that there's a slight vocabulary change. And this one says things like deers, which is a word I never use and I actually can't stand. So when he says, we'd like to tell you deers, or he'll say, tell the young lady, tell the young man, you know, to a 90-year-old, tell the young lady, you know. And... um you know, and I'm curious about the distinctions, but what I don't know really is, and I don't really take the time with, and maybe this is just my ineptitude or ignorance or not really wanting to know, I don't invest too much in the names. I mean, you mentioned Ascended Masters. They used that term in the first book. I balked, and they've really never really used it again with me. And that's not to say that that's not who they are or how they operate, but it's it's loaded with its own baggage. And my challenge around spirit guides and names and all this stuff has been that people tend to bring a lot of ego to that too. Yeah. And then it's ridiculous because it's not about that. It's about the truth of the information, I think, and not how somebody calls themselves um, publicly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's why I liked the the term ascended masters uh, in I am the word, because I imagined a group of people who had uh, transcended ego. Well, that's what they say. I mean, they, they've been saying it a lot. I haven't heard this for a while. They said it this day today about two times in the workshop. They said, you know, we are who you become when you know who you are. That's who we are. We are who you become, you know, so... You know, they're, they're us realized without our fear and our belief that we're separate from our source. And I like that. That means something to me. It allows an, a level of availability. Um, but I also think that they're operating from a much higher consciousness where they're capable. I mean, they put up with me, you know, God knows, and I can't be the easiest channel to work with i kick and scream half the day about it all i really do you know it's like okay i mean that's the why me stuff i don't know why me you know i mean i kind of know why me i kind of asked for it they've said i signed up for it before i was born i had an experience when i was about four or five that i remember an out-of-body experience of of a being hovering over my bed giving me instruction and i i've always i never forgot it and i actually do link it to this time or what I do 
But beyond that, you know, I'm cranky. That's my that's my personality. So, is speaking and, and chanting part of this practice? Speaking is chanting isn't. Um, the guides use language that they say is encoded with uh, with vibration, yeah. so that the the language itself comes in the form of attunements. And so, when you work with the attunements, which are done through spoken word they will shift your field. And it's really the equivalent of tuning your radio to play the higher octaves. And there's a number of them in, in, in the books. And they build in sequence. There's The first one is, is a claim of embodiment. The second, they call it a claim of incarnation. Um, then there's, I don't remember what's after that, um, mastery, the claim of mastery, you know, and now they're working with truth and, and aligning to the vibration of truth. But, um, you know, you know, chanting, I, I think, implies repetition. Mm-hmm. And when, what they say about a, they call these things claims of truth, and they say when something is true, it is always true. And so if you work with these claims, and one of them, for example, is, I know who I am, I know what I am, I know how I serve. Um, and they say that these claims are made by the true self or by the divine self. It's not made by Paul who's trying to figure it out and wants to get a date and doesn't know what he wants, you know, all that stuff. That's the small self. The divine self always knows who and what it is and how it expresses itself. That's always true. So when you claim that, you're aligning as and to the divine self and allowing it to do its work as and through you. Mm, but it's not said in repetition. You can say it. You, you can, I mean, the guides will work with it frequently in workshop, but it's not like you're, you're doing your beads and you're saying, I know who I am, I know what I'm going to serve. It's not like that at all. It really is about claiming something in truth and allowing that to be. Now, I think claiming it once will give you the attunement with it, but when you work with it, I think sequentially, this will support you again in, in what you can hold energetically. So, I mean, we're getting amped up here to a certain extent, I believe, in order to hold more frequency, you know, a higher level of, of, of light or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, you don't want to blow out the light bulb on the first day by by calling in all the wattage that it could potentially hold, but you can claim what you can know. There was a woman in the workshop today who I think has been to probably 10 workshops of mine over the last few years. She's a serious student of the work. And after the break this afternoon, she said, I got it for the first time. I got it. She said, I know who I am now. I know who I am. I mean, she was literally like unable to speak. And I don't know what happened to her. She's had these attunements before. But in for whatever reason, I think it was like sort of a tumbler lock fell into place and the door to the safe opened and kaboom, there was a kind of liberation. The guides say when you work with a claim, I know who I am, I know what I am, I know how I serve, you're calling your vibration into present time, which they say is the only time you can know anything. You can't know tomorrow, you didn't know yesterday, you can only know now. And much of the time, we're all over the place. He calls you back here so you can be in your knowing. And if you're in knowing and you're in your present moment self, then you don't have to be replicating old behavior or acting in fear. Because usually we're just doing what we've always done. But if we're here in this moment, 
and we're choosing from that place and we're present and conscious, we may be choosing very differently. We'll be choosing in accordance with our own truth. There is a concept in the book which I found very fascinating. Uh, I'll, I'll explain it badly, it's the, but that each person who's reading the book is making a choice to receive this knowledge and making a choice to be changed, kind of come more deeply into the higher frequency, the frequency of God or the higher consciousness. I associated that with a type of destiny, as in a meant-to-be-ness. That's interesting. I, I don't know what I think about that. They're saying it's accurate, but you still have free will, so you can choose. So you can choose to put the book down and pick it up again and pick it up again in 25 years and 25 years <laughs> and meet your destiny then. You have great choice. They're saying you have great choice. We make you do anything. They're saying we don't make you do anything. We invite you on a journey. We invite you on a journey. We even hand you the ticket. We even hand you the <laughs> ticket. If you want to come, we will take you. If you want to come, we will take you and love you as you come and love you as you come, period. And they're period. And now, would the same be true for um, listening to this podcast? If the guides were coming through and they were teaching um, and attuning the, the, the listeners, possibly, yeah. I do, um, I do a live stream most Wednesdays. You know, my guides come through, they lecture for half an hour, 40 minutes, and they take about a half hour's worth of questions and they attune everybody and everybody's getting it all over. You know, people, people around the world are getting zapped with this stuff. It's exciting. You don't need to be in a room with me to do it. So a podcast is a fine place. How can we um, find your live stream? Well, through my website, which is just my name. And my name is, you know, my, my website is, you know, paulselig.com, P-A-U-L-S-E-L-I-G.com. And, you know, all my workshops and the live streams and everything's there, you know, and I do readings too. The books that come through me are attunements themselves. You know, people don't need me to do this work, which I think is very fortunate because I'm only here on this plane for so long and, you know, I can't be everywhere anyway. So, But the books can be, you know, where people are yeah. and, um, and that'll sort of help people open up. Yes, I experienced that reading your book, feeling the energy, feeling the attunement come through it. It's... Um yeah, they say that the, the books themselves operate on two levels. The words in the page give a context to the mind for, for the experience. But they say that the real book, they say, is, is written in the ethers. It's the real, the real book is the vibratory or the vibrational dialogue that's happening with your field in the book. And it's what they said would happen when they wrote the first book. They said, you know, this, people are, this is going to be a book that people are going to experience. And if you go to Amazon and you read the reviews of these things, and it's true for all the books, you'll hear people say, I'm reading the book and my body's vibrating. I'm reading the book and I'm seeing auras, you know. And that's what they said would happen. And so they're the book, you know. The language itself is, is doing other work with us. But I think the intent of the book itself is to support us in, in awakening to, to aspects of ourselves that perhaps we haven't. Yes, and you talk about uh, fear being the impediment toward to the awakening. Well, they used to talk a lot about fear. They don't talk about it as much anymore. Um, and maybe I just got tired of taking the dictation on it. But they're, they're, it's a very thorough teaching. And the distillation of the teaching on fear is that, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. Or the purpose of fear is to claim more of itself. And so they support us and me 
and not making choices based in fear. And they say, if you make a choice based in fear, you'll get more of the same. And they say, look at your own lives and look at the last choice you made because you were afraid and see what it got you. Usually it's more fear. So they do talk about that. Um, they talk now about fear as a lie. And then the new book that's not out yet, it's out in January, next June next year. It's called The Book of Truth. And they say that in truth, a lie cannot be held. And the truth of who you are, if you realize the truth of who you are, um, or I do, or anybody does, what is not true and has never been true has to fall away. It can't exist at that level. And it's a trippy teaching, but I totally get it. At the end of this book called The Book of Mastery, which is the last book, they're sort of taking people on a journey up a mountain and they say, okay, so if there's something that, that's stuck, that's not, you can't change or is too painful for you, you know, write it down on a piece of paper and then give it to us and we'll carry it for you. And I thought that was the biggest crock I'd ever heard. I was, I stopped the dictation and they had to address it. And because, and they, you know, my concern was that this was magical thinking or enabling and they responded and they said, you know, we operate in truth, and in truth a lie cannot be held, and everything you've written down on that piece of paper is not who you truly are. So when we hold it, it's not there. We can't, essentially, they can't know us at that level. So, you know, our shame and our fear and our outrage and our confusion and the thing we can't let go of, all of those things finally aren't the truth of who we are. And if we begin to operate at that level, we stop identifying with those things because they don't exist. I mean, they say the divine self or the true self is never afraid. It just doesn't exist at that level. The divine self is never persecuted. And that's a really trippy teaching. And I got that message big time when they were dictating a book last year. The divine self cannot be persecuted. Um, because, you know, it knows who it is. So, you know, the body can, the personality can, but the true self cannot be persecuted. You know, it's, it's your eternal being. And as you begin to realize yourself at that level, so much of what might be deemed fearful no longer has that value because all that stuff is done just through sort of collective agreement about what we should be frightened of, you know? Oh, what a terrible thing. The guides say that claims the thing is terrible. And it puts you into vibratory accord with what you say you don't want. You know, and, and the idea of terrible even is simply an idea as well. Let's talk about love. It was a stumbling block for me in the reading that I did. There's a, a beautiful passage about the fact that the Ascended Masters have love for me have loved me more deeply than I could imagine. And I um, had trouble absorbing that. And I guess my question for you is how can I come into, uh, how, can I, how can I bring that, that uh, thought into, into myself? What could not be 
I hear let it not be a thought, let it be what happens, let it be what happens, let yourself know it through the experience. And let yourself know it through the experience of it, through allowance. They're saying through allowance and being as you truly are, and being as you truly are, the divine self that you are. The divine self that you are knows himself as loved already, knows himself as loved already, the small self cannot. The small self cannot, he is frightened of love, he is frightened of love, he is frightened of claiming others. I hear he is frightened of being claimed by others, by things not truly loved, by things that are not truly loved and have been used and called as loved and have been used and called as love. That's the issue. Yes. So that's the issue, yes? Yes. So how do we get past this? Let us love him. They're saying, let us love him. Let him know himself as love. Let him know himself as love. You have a right to this. You have a right to this, as does Paul, as does Paul, as does everyone else, as does everyone else. Most of you don't know it. Most of you don't know, but it's maybe not true. But that doesn't mean that it's not true, that it's not true, period, period, period. They're saying period. It's my thing, too. It's my one thing. I mean, they said to me not too long ago, that you know, my all pretty much all of my issues could be resolved if I allowed myself love, if I allowed myself to be loved. And I'm thinking, well, why don't I know how to do that then? Um, same reason I hear, same reason. So you know, fear. There's some fear. Um, you know, and I'm much better than I used to be. Goodness knows. I mean, there's a whole other, whole other world. The third book that they channeled through me. It's called The Book of Knowing and Worth. And that's a really, it was a really helpful book for this issue. You know, the life that we claim is always in agreement to what we believe ourselves to be worthy of. And if we don't believe we're worthy of it, we're not going to claim it. We can't have it. And I think that that includes those things. I mean, if I were to tune into you to, to the issue itself, we could go there and move it, you know, perhaps. I mean, that's what I do, you know, and I, I like doing that because it's interesting and you get somebody nodding their head and saying, yes, that's right, which is what you did. Um, and that's really interesting. The bigger the bigger stuff, but let me ask, let me let them answer. The bigger stuff is only as big as you make They're saying the bigger stuff is only as big as you make it. It takes a moment to realize yourself as loved. They're saying it takes a moment to realize yourself as loved the moment you do. And the moment you do, everything is made new. Everything is made new. Be able to make all things new. Behold, I make all things new is a teaching of love, is a teaching of love and realization and realization, the divine self that you are. The divine self that you are, which simply means which simply means the truth of your being, the truth of your being is here to be known, is here to be known as who and what you are, as who and what you are. Please invite him. Please invite him. Let him know he's welcome. Let him know he's welcome. He will make himself known. He will make himself known, and you will know love. And you will know love, period, period, period. And they're saying period, period, period. That's what they say. That's pretty trippy, Paul. Yeah. Well, it's me channeling. That's what they do. It's what I do all day now. You know, now that they, now that I'm not in the classroom, this is the life. You know, this is the work. Is it realistic to be in a constant state of Christ consciousness? 
Oh, what an interesting question. Absolutely. Yes. They're saying absolutely yes. I don't know how I get there by listening to us. They're saying by listening to us. That's the only way. They're saying that's the only way. That's what we're teaching you. They're saying that's what we're teaching you. Of course it's possible. Of course it's possible. It's who you are when you know yourself without fear. It's who you are when you know yourself without fear, without fear. We're not condemning yourself when you're not condemning yourself or anybody else or anybody else. You're not saying tomorrow's off. You're not deciding that tomorrow is off when yesterday stank as well. And yes, Yesterday stank as well that you didn't live up to your potential, that you didn't live up to your potential, what you should have been, or what you should have been, or still could be if you got it right, or still could be if you got it right. All of those things, all of those things decide for you, decide for you that you're not who you are, that you are not who you are and can never be right, and can never be right once you know who and what you are. Once you know who and what you are, these things don't exist. These things don't exist. They're simply ideas. They're simply ideas, ways of knowing the self, ways of knowing the self in accord with the reality, in accord with the reality that would dictate what it should be, that would dictate what it should be, what you should be, what you should be, and how you should behave, and how you should behave. You are as free as you can be. You are as free as you can be when you know this is so. When you know this is so, I am free, I am free, I am free. I am free, I am free, I am free is a claim of truth, is a claim of truth if you work with this one. If you work with this one, the divine self says it for you. The divine self says it for you. The I am self, the I am self announces himself as free, announces himself as free. You release the structures. You release the structures that you've used, that you've used to codify experience, to codify your experience and let you know who you were and let you know who you were. In a accordance with the needs of others, period. And they're saying, period. I feel very grateful that I'm uh, recording this conversation because the it's like the teaching is so, there's so much yeah. that the um, my uh, intellectual mind right now is not completely taking in the words. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Have you had that experience? Yeah, every day, <laughs> myself. I don't remember half of it. <laughs> You know, we left today. I left the break today at the lunch break. I mean, a feeling like I'd lost, you know, five layers of skin. I was a completely raw nerve. Every I just I just wanted to go sit in a hot spring and soothe myself. And we were all completely zonked this afternoon from the teaching. So you're getting it's it's it can be intellectual overload. But it doesn't have to be because we don't this isn't this thing, you know, this isn't about figuring this stuff out. Yeah. That's really not what it's about at all. I mean, there's a small self, they say, wants to figure it all out. Yeah. And we, we, can, we can let that go, too. Yeah. yeah. It seems the book is, I, I, I like the way it was organized because it's, it's dictated in, bre in, in passages and in breaks. And it's like, think about this, go home, mm -hmm. let it sit and percolate. Well, at the end, they, what they say at the end of every dictation session is, stop now, please. And actually, that's for me <laughs> and, and the woman who's on the phone listening to the dictation as it comes forth. And a lot of the readers have assumed that it's for them. And I, I get emails from people saying, do I really have to stop? I want to keep reading. And truthfully, people can do what they want. But the breaks actually are the organic breaks in how the teaching came forth. And it's not a bad place to actually sort of be with it and let it work on you or with you before. Because it's not like you have to, you know... It's not like you're going to download or ingest the whole thing at once and it's going to make sense. It's just, it's not never going to. You spoke a bit about writing a book, uh, possibly about your experiences, which is such a, it's such a fascinating idea. And it's, um, 
it would be a different process. Yeah, it would be. Than having the words come through you. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like to do that kind of writing, you are in touch with, I am Paul. I am writing more in touch with that ego and that Mm -hmm. self. And I'm wondering, what do you imagine the process of writing that book would be like? I don't know because I haven't I haven't fully gone there. Um, I am someone now who has this really rare experience of sitting in a chair over a period of days or weeks and dictating an entire book that doesn't require any editing at all. I mean, this has happened now five times, and they all are in print as they were delivered. You know. Once in a while, there's a word that's mispronounced, you know, or I st- I'm speaking so fast, I stumble over a word, I and mean, then I have to go back and find out what it was. But really, the books are, that's how they come. And frankly, the idea of sitting down and saying, I'm going to take a year and write my memoir is scary, you know, but only because I think I'm bringing to that my experience of how hard it was for a period of time for me to write. And for all I know, this will be just as easy as anything else, you know. A lot of what I do when I teach, even when I'm not channeling, is I ask spirit to put the words in my mouth, and then I let it come. And that works. And there's no reason that can't work with something other, too. I, I was speaking in the class today about the difference between channeling and inspired work. And I, when I'm working in the way that I work, I'm a channel, which means I don't get to change things. I don't claim the authorship of my book. My name is on the cover now, but it's, it says a channel text. And I'm, I'm second fiddle to the guides, You know, that's just how this happens. And there are wonderful spiritual teachers that I feel are very connected to source or whatever, some higher consciousness, whatever you want to call it, who can write their book. And that book is a vibrational tome. And, you know, I suppose the difference is that it's edited and it's crafted. And um, But I don't discount that as a way of working, too. I mean, I think all true art is inspired Whatever the source of the inspiration is, whatever you want to credit that to is is up to you. You know, the muse or your imagination or whatever. When I had terrible writer's block, when I was in my early 30s, it was the beginning of a long spell of it, actually. But I had a therapist in those days, Hurricane Harriet. She was this tough old broad with like, a you know, one of those extra long cigarettes. She'd smoke in the office and she had bleach blonde hair. She was a tough old bird. And she said to me once, your problem is you think you're your talent. I never heard of you. You're not Neil Simon. This is what she said to me. You're not Neil Simon. I never heard of you. You go home and you say thank you to whatever you believe in. And you say thank you for my writing and see what happens. So she said you are not your talent. You are not your talent. Your problem is you think you're your talent. Talents are gifts. She said you go home and you say thank you for the gift. And I did, and I could write, you know, haltingly, but I could do it. And she was absolutely right. My my creative constipation was all about my self-importance 
and who I thought I was supposed to be and the horrific fear that I couldn't live up to some potential that I thought I had. I am word through my body, word I am word. I am word through my vibration, word I am word. I am word through my knowing of myself as word, word I am word. And when you do this, you're essentially tuning your radio up to be in broadcast as this. And what it means is you're essentially aligning the physical self to this field and your, vibr your, your, your energetic self, which is the, you know, is the auric field to this, and you're reclaiming your identity outside of the personality structure to claim your inherent divinity. I don't say I, Paul, am the word yeah. any more than you are or anybody else is. Paul Selig, thank you so much for this fascinating, eye-opening, hair-raising <laughs> talk. This just um, this was profound for me. I want to thank uh, you for that and thank you for your guides. Thank, thank you, you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe. For more information about the Esalen Institute and to see what great programs we've got going here, just visit us on the web at esalen.org. All of our podcasts are archived there, too. Until next time, thank you for listening and be well.